Welcome to MDASH, the healthcare podcast that gives you pause. I'm Kim Aquaviva. Today's episode, Room for Feedback, featuring Kate Sanchez. Hi, welcome to MDASH. Hello. So uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, Introduce yourself with your name, your pronouns, and a little bit about what you'd like us to know. Yeah. um, So my name is Kate Sanchez. I use alternating he, she, and they pronouns. Um, And I've got a lot of different things going on in my life. But I I guess firstly, I'm a grad student. Um, I'm in my, hopefully my final year at um, UPenn Graduate School of Education. Uh, So I'm studying, it's called Education, Culture, and Society, which is like a very fancy title. Uh, But I, my focus for like my master's paper is on trans inclusion in medical education curriculum. So I spend a lot of time uh, thinking and talking and reading about that. Uh, I also work as a standardized patient. Um, So (laughs) I am literally like a professional patient. Uh, And then I also like in my real life end up being a patient pretty frequently. And my mom is also chronically ill. So I spend like a lot of time going to hospitals and doctor's appointments uh, and talking about doctors and medical education and all of these things. So you mentioned that you have worked as a standardized patient and you've also been a real live patient um, where it's not a simulation. Can you talk a little bit about what it's like to be you with the identities you carry as a real patient? And would you like to share any of those identities with listeners? Yeah. So it's really interesting. Like one of the, I think one of the harder things about being a standardized patient isn't actually what happens like when I'm on the job, but what happens outside of it. And so when I'm doing my work as a standardized patient, I have this awesome opportunity to tell like these med students or practicing nurses or whatever, like just sit down with them and say, hey, these are the things that you did that made me really uncomfortable. Or, hey, here's the things that you did that made me feel super safe. And like, thank you for that. I would love it if you would continue to do that. Um, (laughs) But then in my real life, when I am out in the wild and I encounter like doctors, nurses, other healthcare professionals who are not super great. I don't get a chance to like step out of that interaction and like sit down with them and tell them, here's the ways that you messed up. Um, and so, yeah, so I am queer. Uh, I'm mixed race. I'm disabled. I have like all these different intersecting identities going on. And I actually recently had a really terrible experience at a hospital a couple months ago. And the whole time, all I could think was, man, if I was like working right now, I would have so much feedback to give to this person. (laughs) What happened? So I, um, back in August, I was actually sexually assaulted. And I won't go like into detail about what happened with that. But as it kind of pertains to this stuff, I was, um, I was like really drunk. Like I had blacked out, which is not what I had intended to do when I went out. Um, but I somehow ended up in that condition and I was like left in a parking lot, uh, sort of like semi-conscious and like surrounded by vomit. (laughs) Um, and either the person who did it, who was a stranger, um, or I at some point dialed 911 on my phone and, 
I so I remember like being in the ambulance and I actually remember like my memory was still a little fuzzy at this point but I remember them asking me like which hospital I preferred to go to and I still I because I had blacked out I actually didn't really know like the extent of what had happened um and they said like oh well you know we'll normally take you to like this local hospital in your town or if you don't want to go there, you can go to this other hospital. And I remember I made like a joke about the hospital that they were going to take me to because it has a sort of a reputation in our area. Hmm. But I was just very, I remember like feeling very resigned. Like I wasn't like throwing up anymore. I was just sitting hunkered in the back of this ambulance. Like, oh man, like, of course, you know, my life has led to this point. Um and they, like, the, whoever was in the ambulance with me also made some kind of joke about the hospital, but I ended up just going there anyway, I think especially because even in that state, I was like, I can't even afford this ambulance ride that I'm in right now, let alone, like, going farther than than just, like, around the corner. Hmm. So we got there, and um, I vaguely remember, you know, like, being wheeled in and hearing them, you know, telling them, like, what was going on. And I remember kind of the typical questions and I've like, I've been <laughs> a, a real and a fake patient for long enough that I know the kind of typical line of questioning, you know, like, yes, this is my medical history. Um, these are the things, these are like my medications. Uh, this is how I'm feeling, blah, blah, blah. Um, and apparently at some point when the doctor, um, who was like on rotation in the ER had asked, you know, the question of like, do you want to harm yourself or anyone else? Which is a question I've been asked a thousand times as a patient and I'm very used to it. Mm -hmm. Apparently I was still like so resigned at this point that I laughed and I said, Oh, no more than usual, <laughs> like jokingly. And yeah. but, then, <laughs> but then I immediately said, and like, this is all written down in the like hospital report. I, I laughed and I, I, I said that and then I immediately was like oh that was a really stupid thing to say no I don't want to hurt myself and then so I was like sitting in this little you know like, like the curtained off quote-unquote room in the ER uh for a very long time just kind of by myself and like a police officer came in talked to me left um and I, you know, nurses were wearing out and I, I called my, this was in the middle of the night. So I called my girlfriend. I had to call her like five times to wake her up and be like, I'm in the ER. I'm so sorry. <laughs> uh, so eventually she came. And I, at that point I had only seen, I think I had seen the doctor like when she was asking me those questions. And then I had kind of seen a nurse like pop in and out. And that was like the extent to which I spoke to people in the hospital. <laughs> and then my girlfriend got there. And I think like in retrospect, what happened was that they saw, they were like, oh, another person is here, a sober person. We should like maybe get our act together. <laughs> and so at that point they started checking in on me a little bit more. Um, but I, the entire time they were just really treating me like they were acting like I was there to be treated for drunkenness and not for the fact that I had just been assaulted and like traumatized. Um, and they only really talked about my level of drunkenness and they like, I was worried because I had blacked out and I have like, I've blacked out like 
maybe two times in my life and Mm -hmm. it didn't seem right to me. And I, um, like jokingly later on, I was kind of like, well, who, you know, goes to a chain restaurant on a Tuesday to roofie people. But, (laughs) but I, I was at the time worried about that. And I still didn't know the extent of what really happened. And they, didn't they weren't really listening to my concerns uh they were only concerned about how drunk I was and that I needed to be like clinically sober and so they told me that I needed to be clinically sober to get a sane kit done um and at that point I was really stressed out because I had just had the super traumatic thing happen to me I was exhausted it was the middle of the night um and they were just really not treating me with any kind of like empathy or respect. And so I told them I wanted to go home and I could, I figured like I can go home, I can rest for a little bit and then I can come back in the morning and, um, or like, well, really go to a different hospital in the morning and get a scene kit done. And the, like one of the nurses was like, oh, okay, yeah, sure. We'll go do that. Like, I'll go get your discharge papers or whatever. She leaves and she comes back (laughs) and at this point the shifts had changed. And so there was a different doctor. Um, and I had not like, I've been in ERs a lot. And in my experience, every time the shifts change and a new doctor is coming in to work on your case, they come like the first doctor will come and say, hi, I'm leaving, but this other doctor is going to come in. And then the new doctor comes in and introduces themselves and that didn't happen. Like I was told that the shifts changed, but I never, I never saw the first doctor leave and I never saw who the new doctor was. The nurse came back and she was like, oh, actually your doctor uh, says that you made a suicidal statement and we can't let you leave until you're clinically sober. And I was just so distraught when that, when she told me that. And I was like, what did I even say? And they t- eventually they told me like what they had written down. And I was like, that was a joke. Like I, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't mean that. Um, and like this entire time I was like, my girlfriend was really upset. I was really upset. They weren't treating my girlfriend with any respect. Um, and eventually the, after we had, I guess like, talked loudly enough or something about how upset we were we were with the entire process uh the doctor came over and this was the first time that either of us had seen him and he was like hi I understand that you're um that you want to go home I can't let you go home because you made a suicidal statement and you can't take it back until you're sober and I like I first of all, I'm autistic. And so if things start to go a certain way, especially in a state like that, I get very upset. And so I I was like crying and I'm trying Mm -hmm. to talk to this guy and say like, I just want to go home, blah, blah, blah. And he, uh, he eventually told me that if I didn't calm down, he would restrain me and sedate me. And if I tried to leave, they would have to call the police. My girlfriend later on, she told me she was like so worried that I was going to try to like run out the front door. And she said, like, I was really afraid that if because I'm like a brown person, I'm autistic, I'm like visibly queer, like all these different things. My girlfriend was really afraid that if I tried to leave the hospital, I might be like seriously injured or worse by the police if they called them. And also just on the end of like the sexual assault stuff, like they didn't. They never tried to like call any kind of advocate for me. They didn't call down any kind of counselor. They didn't put me in a private space. Um, They 
didn't like they let me drink water or they let me go to the bathroom they let me do all of these things that just didn't line up with what my girlfriend and I both know are how you are meant to like handle someone who has just been sexually assaulted um and meanwhile there was like we're like listening to people on either side of my bed who are getting treated for different things like throughout the night there's a guy who came in with like an infected boil or something and I could hear the doctor who ignored me outside of telling me that he was going to restrain me (laughs) who was like talking to this guy and was like oh hey bud like so sorry we're gonna get you fixed right up and all these things like I heard him speak to this man with more empathy uh than he showed me at any point in the night (laughs) wow it sounds awful yeah it was really bad and I and because they were and he also told me he was like listen you made the decision to get drunk and now you need to deal with that and I was so flabbergasted and I kept trying to tell them like I didn't mean to get this drunk like it's really concerning to me and I had to beg them to do a urine test to like trust to test for drugs and then even when I asked like eventually when I was leaving I was like did you get any like results from my urine back and he didn't even know what I was talking about (laughs) and he was like oh for like STIs he was like well that's not going to show up for a couple of days but if you want us to we can test for like your baseline And I was furious. I was like, I know what my baseline for SDIs is. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about I want to know if I've been drugged and I know I only have so much time to figure that out. Um. (laughs) I can't even, I cannot even imagine how awful that must have been for you. Yeah. And, and so the thing was that because that was like so traumatizing and they also hadn't given me, I take um, a medication every night that has a really bad withdrawal period and so if I miss one dose it like debilitates me for an entire day they never like asked me for any clarification about my medications and they never offered to like get me any from the pharmacy and so I by the time I went home at like 10 in the morning I was exhausted and I just went to sleep for like an entire day and because they had just so terribly not taken what had happened to me seriously And because I couldn't remember it, I was like doubting that anything really happened at all. I was like, maybe nothing even happened. Maybe, you know, like this guy wanted to do stuff and then I threw up all over the place and he just left me. Um, And then it turns out I got a call, you know, a couple of days later from the detectives and, and like detailing, hey, we found surveillance footage and this is what happened. And I was devastated because this experience at the hospital was so traumatizing And I was so messed up from my medication being out of whack. I went home and I slept for an entire day. And then I didn't end up going to get a sink kit done until like the last day that I could have possibly done it. (laughs) And so I I literally found out after I completed the sink kit what had actually happened. And I was just so angry that they had made me doubt so severely that something had happened. I'm so sorry. And and I'm so sorry that you didn't get to have an advocate, and to have someone tell you that what happened to you was not your fault. And no matter how drunk you were, no one has a right to assault you. And you should have gotten to hear those things in the hospital. And it sounds like people failed to do that. Yeah, it was just really terrible all around. And like after after the doctor had come over and like said all these terrible things to us, um, one of the nurses tried to come over and she tried to like sit down on my bed and like touch my, my leg without 
asking me and I was like, get away from me. Don't touch me. Like, Can someone please just recognize what happened right. to me? And my girlfriend was so upset and she is like, I mean, she's like a poli sci PhD student. So she, she's like very intelligent. She knows how things are supposed to be going. She like walked over and she was outlining all of these things that the doctor was doing wrong at the nurse's station. And they had been sitting at the nurse's station all night talking about me in full like hearing of the ER. Um, and so all these things were happening that we knew was wrong, but we also knew that we didn't really have any power to do anything. And I think, I, I mean, my large suspicion is that a lot of this mistreatment came from the fact that like my girlfriend and I look like a lesbian couple, um, you know, like I'm brown, I'm autistic, so I interact with people in stressful situations in a certain way. Um, all these different things that just kind of added up to me not being a person who is worthy of being treated with respect or any level of empathy. Well, it sounds like the hospital did not have much experience or knowledge about how to provide trauma-informed care, how to provide care immediately after an assault, and also how to work with people who are not neurotypical, because all of those things, you know, they should have been able to, they should have been able to treat you with more respect and also more clinical competency. Um, yeah. And I, there was a point at which I had been told so many times that I couldn't leave and that I was going to be there all night. And they're like, well, it's probably going to take you this many hours to sober up from the level that you're at right now. Um, and they had also, they had given me an IV when I first came in, I had used up the IV bag. And then my girlfriend was like, why haven't you, like, it's been this many minutes since this was emptied. Why haven't you given us and given her a new IV? And they're like, oh, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> and I'm sitting there and I'm like, I know that I'm dehydrated from being too drunk. Like, what do you mean it doesn't work like that, that you can't give me a fresh bag? <laughs> wow. Well, and because you've been a standardized patient in situations where you're used to having some power to give feedback, what was it like to not have that chance to give the feedback about how the providers were doing? And then the follow-up question is, um, if there were ever an opportunity for you to go back and give them that feedback, what would you say? It was just absolutely terrible. I felt so powerless in a way that like, especially because I couldn't even remember specifically what had happened to me. It was like, that was traumatizing and it was traumatizing to not be able to remember, but then to like sit in this space and not be able to tell them, these are all the ways that you're fucking up. I felt more powerless and more vulnerable like than I have really ever felt in my life. Um, and there was like a moment where I, after I had been told that I couldn't leave, I was just walking, I was just pacing up and down. And the emergency room was pretty empty that night, even though they told us, oh, we don't have any space to put you in a private room. I, I was just walking, like pacing up and down kind of the aisle of the emergency room and apparently one of the nurses went up to my girlfriend and was like is like is she all right and my girlfriend was like she's autistic <laughs> and, and they were like oh and then it was really weird because the um another person who was brought in there was like an autistic child who had brought in with his family who had like slipped in the shower or something and they were they were, they were like very clearly trying to kind of work with the parents to figure out like how to talk to this, this kid in a way that like worked for him, but they hadn't given me anything like that. And I, yeah, like if I could go back and just like look these people in the face and tell them, 
how terribly they did and how badly it affected me. I mean, I, I wouldn't even know where to start. (laughs) It's, it's just beyond imagining. And yet what you're describing in terms of how you were treated, sadly, isn't, isn't uncommon. And when people talk about the experience, particularly being queer and presenting to a healthcare professional, people, people tell stories like this. Um, and it, it breaks my heart every time I hear it, because it's, it's clear that there's so, there's so much further that we have to go in healthcare to have people recognize that queer people are as, as valuable human beings as other people. And we have a long way to go to get there. Yeah. And I remember I was sitting there and like, while I was so upset about all this, I just kept saying like, this is why people don't get justice. This is why people don't get help. Like I am a marginalized person. I'm a vulnerable person. And you're not providing me like even the basest levels of human decency. Um, And it's just no surprise that that there are so many people who go through these things and don't actually get the help that they need. And it was like breaking my heart for myself, but also breaking my heart for just everyone else. Because it's one of those things where it's like, you know it logically, you know that these things happen. But then when it was happening to me, I was still just totally flabbergasted. And especially because it's like, I get to work with like all these great, you know, new med students Mm -hmm. who are just so excited to help people. And I will have these interactions with them where they're like objectively doing a great job and they just need a little bit of tweaking. And they're so different from kind of more jaded professionals who I interact with. And the, that, you know, dissonance between these two different kinds of people is really shocking Mm -hmm. when you encounter it sort of back to back. Well, that's really the value of standardized patient case. You know, it is, it's a powerful way to help medical students, nursing students, NP students, PA students learn the skills that we want them to practice when they go out into the world after they graduate. And when folks like you are engaged and involved as a standardized patient, you know, a non, a non, I don't want to say a non-healthcare professional, because in many ways, a standardized patient is part of our whole healthcare professional team. Um, But when someone such as yourself serves as a standardized patient, you bring with you all of your your own identities and experiences that help inform the feedback you give. So even if you're taking on a role that's very different than your own identities, no one can shed their identities and the insights they've gleaned over the years from living in those identities. And so the feedback you give healthcare providers, future healthcare providers and professionals, it it changes the way they practice. Um, Would you ever be open to or or I don't know, or would it be helpful? Maybe it wouldn't even be helpful to, to go to one of the schools that you do SP work with and suggest that they consider doing um, a sexual assault case involving someone with a same gender partner. I mean, yeah, I would definitely be open to, to doing that and, and working on that. Um, and I have kind of sort of gently with like the standardized patient program that I'm in, there have been times where I've gently said like, Hey, um, 
the way that you did this was a little, you know, like, can we kind of talk about a way that we could do this? That would be more inclusive. Um, I'm not trying to suggest that you should do the labor of like having to do, like put, put it together, (laughs) but just even, even, and maybe just in the act of doing this podcast, you know, we can put it out there to say to folks who are doing standardized patient cases, you know, consider having cases with queer individuals, but also uh, folks who are autistic, like cases that involve people presenting to ERs for um, after a sexual assault, because we do need to be able to do a better job with these populations. So I don't want you to think I'm, I'm saying you should really go and create a case yourself. Um, but but it is, there, there are nuggets of wisdom that you've just shared in your story that I hope someone will pick up and then do something with to make things better for the people who come after you. What happened to you should never have happened. And I'm so sorry. Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, I would honestly love to be able to, to work, you know, cause like I, as traumatizing as it was for me, I'm also just concerned about it happening to future people. And there's not really much that I can do to stop like this particular doctor, this particular emergency department from interacting with, uh, with similar cases. Um, but yeah, I mean, so I have done in my SP work, I've, I've done some kind of like queer cases. They're kind of like the special cases, um, say, say more about that, about the special cases. Cause I'm, I'm curious about <laughs> your take. Um, and I'm curious about how it kind of syncs up with my experience of queer SP cases. So can you say more? Yeah. So, um, the most experience I think I have is actually for like the dental school at the school that I work for. Um, so they have like cases where, um, like there, there's one that I've had to do where I am, I'm portraying a queer person with a same sex partner who was like assaulted in sort of like a a hate crime while out and about and, and had their jaw broken and then having to like go to the dentist or the oral surgeon for follow-ups and say like, Oh, I'm still, you know, taking these opioids. I'm still in pain, but I need to work. And, um, like how, just being able to see like how they can handle having this really heavy conversation with someone who in most cases is not like themselves. Interesting. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so the, I have done like different cases like that where it's kind of like, Oh, there's like a special spicy challenge. Um, but what I, what I would love to see is just more integration of these things kind of overall in like the quote unquote normal cases. Yeah. That's what I was wondering. Cause my, my, lived experience of standardized patient cases. And I I have not had exposure directly at UVA with our standardized patient cases, but in the past, standardized patient cases that involve LGBTQ folks tend to be very specific to the fact they're LGBTQ. So um, like a lesbian couple, they want to get pregnant or um, the gay man who's interested in PrEP. And I just want to see like cases involving trans women with diabetes and the fact that they're trans is just yeah. like you know what I mean or like a, a you know a lesbian comes in and she has you know congestive heart failure and the fact that she's a lesbian is literally just one tiny data point and the case isn't built around her sexual orientation so yeah that's what and I have seen like 
small glimpses of that. Like sometimes we'll be prepping for a case and it's like, oh, does it matter if I have a girlfriend or a boyfriend? And they're like, oh, it doesn't matter. You can say either. Yeah. um, And there's other, I, you know, there are other like trans uh, standardized patients who I work with. And I mean, the thing that sucks is that sometimes we'll go in and we'll have a case that's like about diabetes and like diabetes education. But because this person is like visibly trans, then the practitioners get caught up in, oh, what, like, why do I need to ask about pronouns? What does that mean? And, And then it becomes an entire conversation about that. And so, and that's kind of part of what I am talking about in my master's paper is that like, we're not just talking about, you know, endocrinologists and surgeons and all these things, but just general care and how to, you know, talk to a person and see that part of them as only one pillar of their identity Mm -hmm. and see, you know, that it's not always really relevant to your, your treatment path. Right. Well, and so often, you know, I'll talk with trans folks and they'll talk about the moment their transness is known by a healthcare provider, they the healthcare provider goes down this rabbit hole of asking questions that in no way would be clinically relevant, but more reflect either their um, interest in uh, trans health or um, curiosity. And, and then the trans patient has a really hard time getting the healthcare provider to focus in on the actual presenting problem. So I think, you yeah. know, we have to we have to educate healthcare professionals how to see it as one piece of the puzzle, but it should not derail someone's entire interview so that they forget good clinical care. Right. And then, yeah, and so many times you go to see a practitioner, or you know, you go to the emergency room, you go to an urgent care, and you know that you only have fifteen minutes maybe right. to sit there and do this like history taking and everything. <laughs> It's like, I don't want to sit here and and tell you about like, yes, I had a mastectomy, but that doesn't have anything to do with my ear infection. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. And I think it like, I don't like to, you know, cross compare different kinds of like marginalization, but it's similar to a lot of my friends will talk about, um, you know, if you're fat and you go to the doctor with like a sore throat or a twisted ankle, they're like, well, have you thought about losing weight? And it's like, that's not what I'm here for. And it feels kind of like somewhat similar when you go to the doctor as a trans person and they just want to talk about all of these different things. And it's like, dude, I'm just here to see if I have a, like the flu. Right, right, exactly. You don't want to go down into a deep discussion about, um, you know, hormones and things that may not necessarily be clinically relevant in the moment. And you, the the piece you said about, you know, you only have about 15 minutes. I think that's so key. So we, we only get this tiny window of time as patients with a healthcare professional. And so whose agenda gets to drive how those 15 minutes are used and whose need gets met by the questions that are asked in those 15 minutes. And I think it's a, it is a struggle. Like, you know, you want folks to focus in on what we as patients know and think is clinically relevant, but then the healthcare professional has ideas and thoughts about recognizing there's some things that they see as clinically relevant that patients don't. And so how do we find that balance where we both leave that interaction feeling like they got the information they need from the patient and the patient got the answers they were hoping to be able to get in 15 minutes? Yeah. And I think, I don't know, there's just so much, like there's so many problems with, you know, 
uh, like medical paternalism and all these things where there's just such an inherent power dynamic as soon as these two people walk into a room. And some of the things that I have seen like in my standardized patient work is I love it when someone walks into the room and they sit down and they ask something like, what are your expectations for this visit? Or like, what would you like to see come out of our conversation? And to actually like set it up and see what it is on the patient's end that they want out of this so that you can then frame your discussion around that instead of getting caught up on these different tracks. I, I had a dentist appointment this summer and it was crazy. It was the the one encounter I've ever had with a healthcare professional where I I was so stunned that I my ear my eyes teared up. Um, it was a dentist I'd never seen before, and I was there because I had horrible tooth pain and I knew I needed fillings. And before he looked in my mouth, he brought me into an office, sat down, um, and there was a dental hygienist there as well. And he said, I just want to start by getting to know you. And I want to know what's important to you in your life right now. And in that moment, my wife was dying and I needed to have my, one of my dogs put to sleep that day. And like, like as soon as I was done at the dentist. So I said, you know what, my, my wife is dying and I have to have Zippy, one of my dogs put to sleep after I leave here. And he like held space for that. And it was amazing. And so he was like, okay, so as we do the treatment plan for what we're going to do with your teeth, that's helpful for me to know, you know, we're not going to go down this path of if there's complicated stuff, we're going to deal with what we need to do right now today to make you feel better today. And then if there's other things that need to be done, when you're ready, you can come back. It was amazing. Like it was the <laughs> most stunning thing I've ever seen. Um, and the dentist even shared, he said, you know, thank you for sharing about your wife. My wife has Parkinson's. It's really hard facing the loss of a loved one. And it was like, it was textbook fabulous. It was my dentist. It was a dentist that I met um, and said, you know, can you tell me a little bit about your wife? And it just blew my mind. So it's, when it's amazing. It's amazing. But how sad is it that amazing doesn't happen often enough? I was going to say, it's really sad that the bar is so low yeah. that we are like, we're moved to tears when a professional like treats us as a human being instead of just a number on a piece right. of paper. Right. And, and <laughs> like that shouldn't be too much to ask for, but it, it really is. Well, particularly as a queer person. I mean, I certainly see in lots of healthcare interactions for me as a patient, my queerness ends up either being focused on too much or awkward, like very, it just yeah. causes this awkwardness and then it's just we and then it's just weird. And also as someone who educates healthcare professionals, similar to you as a standardized patient, when you see something happening and you want to give feedback in the you want to give feedback, like when I say I'm a lesbian and I'm married, no one ever takes a sexual history and asks me anything about who I'm having sex with at all. So yep. there's an assumption. So I'm married and I'm a lesbian. I I was only having sex with my wife, but oh my God, you know, people shouldn't just go with what I, I identify as a lesbian and I identify as a married person, but that does not, that's not linked to behavior. Um, and so that, that kills me because I know for me, 
I don't have any risk factors that need to be addressed, but that's just by luck's sake. But if they are making the same assumptions with other people, is their discomfort around someone's queerness what's driving the lack of follow-up questions? Or is no one getting follow-up questions and it's a discomfort with human sexuality? Yeah, it's just, I, um, I mean, I get similar things. Like I have, um, like my partner is assigned female at birth. I'm assigned female at birth. And, you know, I go to the gyno and, and she's like, oh, are you having sex with men, women, or both? I'm like, well, I guess mostly like quote unquote women right now. Um, and she's like, oh, okay. And that's where the line of questions (laughs) stop. And it's like, listen, I'm also like, you need to factor in all these different facets of my being like I'm also non-monogamous I'm also bisexual like my partner is queer like we we you know there are still opportunities for us to encounter all these different things that you're worried about it doesn't just suddenly disappear at that point right. yeah no and I think that that is probably it's so hard for me to know if it's people's discomfort with queerness or discomfort with talking about sex in general but it's all too often the conversation stops when people will say oh I'm with this person Um, And there's so many questions that people need to be asking. And that's not just of queer people. I mean, I certainly, you know, it it is incredibly rare that I encounter any heterosexual cisgender person who's married, who's getting a sexual history taken. It it does not happen that often. Um, And, you know, unfortunately, clinicians' knowledge around human sexuality is often not what it needs to be. Uh, the only people who really end up having conversations with their clinician about things like, you know, do they need an anal pap? Gay men get asked that question, but lots of straight married people have anal sex and they're not, they're not getting those questions. No one's asking them. So what are we, what opportunities are we missing? Um, I think for the queer community, people, at least my experience is that healthcare professionals see the queerness piece and they try to ask the queer focused question one or two, and then they kind of drop the ball. Um, and for non-queer people, the assumption is that they do nothing queer at all. <laughs> so um, human sexuality is, is you know, it's a spectrum. And I've always said uh, everybody, no matter how vanilla they are, people do a wide variety of things. And uh, that includes married, cisgender, heterosexual folks. So I think we healthcare professionals can definitely do a better job. Yeah. And I like, that's something that I talk about a lot is like, I walk into a room and I don't necessarily want to give like a queer 101 session, depending on what my objective is. And that's what ends up happening unless you're going to kind of like closet yourself in certain ways. And so much of it happens because it's like we're just not having this kind of like nuanced education for these these people. None of us as queer people should have to use any of that 15 minute visit to be someone's teachable moment. Yeah. Because like we're paying the same price for the service as someone else. Um, and so we shouldn't be spending some of our money to teach somebody something, we should, everyone should be coming to us with that education in place. I really appreciate you coming on MDASH. And I I just want to say again, how sorry I am for the way you were treated after your assault. And I hope people listening to this will, will go out of their way to make sure that they never make someone feel the way that you were made to feel in that emergency department. 
Yeah, thank you so much. Well, thanks for thanks for being on M Dash. Oh, and where can listeners find you? Are you on Twitter? Do you have a website or anything you'd like to promote? Yeah, so I I am on Twitter. My Twitter is not particularly professional, but people can still look for it if they want. Um, it's at Crisp Red, so that's C R I S P, uh, R E D with I think it's an underscore in between. Yeah, it's Crisp underscore Red. Um, and then I also, if you search for me, if you search for Kate Sanchez on Medium and on Gumroad, I have um some writings, and I also have a a zine that is the first draft of a zine that I'm making to accompany my master's paper, um, and that's like available for pay what you wish download. And where could they find that? So that's if you go to Gumroad. Um, oh, it's, it'll be on the Gumroad link. Okay, yeah, I can so. put those links in the um, the promo image so that people will be able to to get that and also get it in the description of this episode. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. Yeah, no problem. Take care.